This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Washington, June 25th, 1804. Your letter, my dear friend, of the 25th Ultimo is a new proof of the goodness of your heart, and the part you take in my loss marks an affectionate concern for the greatness of it. It is great indeed. Others may lose of their abundance, but I, of my want, have lost even the half of all I had. My evening prospects now hang on the slender thread of a single life. Perhaps I may be destined to see even this last cord of parental affection broken. The hope with which I had looked forward to the moment when, resigning public cares to younger hands, I was to retire to that domestic comfort from which the last great step was to be taken, is fearfully blighted. When you and I look back on the country over which we have passed, what a field of slaughter does it exhibit? Where are all the friends who entered it with us under all the inspiring energies of health and hope? Thomas Jefferson President Jefferson was noted as generally being an optimistic person, sometimes unrealistically so. But as is demonstrated in this letter of June 1804, doubts about what the future had in store were present in his mind. To learn what prompted this period of melancholy, we must return to where we left off last episode, with the president departing Washington, D.C. in early April, bound for his younger daughter's sickbed at Monticello. Before we do that, though, I'd like to take the opportunity to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. For all that he's done to support this podcast, it was nice recently to be able to return the favor for him. A satellite radio station that he listens to had a Labor Day weekend listener takeover. As he's always dreamed of being a DJ, he recorded an intro for a song to contribute and I ran it through my editing process for preparing episodes to make it sound even sharper. When it aired, it was a proud moment and the highlight of his weekend. He's always so great when he prepares intro quotes for this podcast, so I had no doubt he'd sound great as a guest DJ. I can't thank him enough for volunteering to further craft his vocal talents by helping with this episode. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our patrons, Matthew, Jeremy, Michelle, Kara, Howard, and Scott. I greatly appreciate their financial contributions, which cover the monthly hosting fees for the podcast and allow me to plan technology improvements to enable the podcast to move even further ahead in its mission and journey. If you would like to become a patron of the podcast, simply go to patreon.com forward slash presidencies and sign up. If you're not able to contribute to a monthly donation, but still want to help the podcast, go to presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-Y.com. And there you'll find the many ways you can help the podcast. With all that said, let's rejoin Jefferson as he heads home to Charlottesville. When the president arrived at Monticello, he found his daughter Maria, quote, so weak as barely to be able to stand, her stomach so disordered as to reject almost everything she put into it, a constant small fever and an imposthume rising in her breast. Jefferson would take it onto himself to direct the type of food she was given and wrote Secretary of State James Madison on April 9th that, quote, I'm not without hopes of raising her again, 
as I should expect that restoring her strength by wine and digestible food, her fever would wear off. Despite the efforts of the president, as well as other members of the family, Maria continued to languish in ill health as the month went on. On April 16th, Maria's brother-in-law, Representative Thomas Mann Randolph, wrote to Representative Caesar Rodney asserting that, quote, We have no longer ground left whereon to build the fondest and most fantastic hope of Mrs. Epps' recovery. Finally, as Jefferson noted in his account book on April 17th, quote, This morning, between 8 and 9 o'clock, my dear daughter, Maria Epps, died. Maria was 26 when she passed away at Monticello. We have few details of the funeral services, but we do know that a former schoolmate of Jefferson's officiated at the funeral, and Maria Jefferson Epps was buried in the graveyard on the hillside of Monticello, where her mother was also interred. The family, which had suffered much loss over the years, was devastated by her death. Especially hard hit was Maria's sister, Martha Jefferson Randolph. As described by Martha's biographer, Cynthia Kerner, quote, the loss of her sister, her sole surviving sibling, devastated the usually stoic Martha. The fact that both her mother and her sister died young as a result of complications due to pregnancy, a condition she herself endured so frequently, made the loss even more shocking. After Maria's death, Martha experienced cramps, spasms, and difficulty breathing, physical manifestations of grief. As for Jefferson, it wasn't until April 23rd that he wrote Secretary Madison that, quote, our fears here took their ultimate form on the 17th. He delayed his plans to leave Monticello due to, quote, a desire to see my family in a state of more composure before we separate, and asked Madison to inform the other cabinet members. Let us leave the Jefferson family in their grief and make our way back to Coyle's boarding house in Washington, D.C., which served as the, quote, center of Federalist activity and the hub of the conspiracy to establish a Northern Confederacy separate from the United States. While our old friend, Senator Timothy Pickering of Massachusetts, is often cited as being the leader of the conspiracy, it must also be remembered that Pickering wasn't alone in his efforts. Indeed, as historian Kevin Gannon notes, quote, Senator William Plumer of New Hampshire was the busiest conspirator, pinning over 400 letters to various constituents in an effort to discern the extent of public support for disunion. Pickering, however, reached out to more prominent names, such as former U.S. Minister to Britain and Federalist candidate for Vice President Rufus King, and went on a trip to New York to visit with prominent Federalists there. I haven't been able to find confirmation that former Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton was one of those who Pickering met with during his trip, but Hamilton did tell an associate, quote, that he had been applied to in relation to that subject, i.e. the secession conspiracy, by some persons from the eastward. King was tactful in his reply to Pickering in that, while he didn't write any words of support of the plan, said that the opinions the senator had expressed, quote, ought to fix the attention of the real friends of liberty in this quarter of the Union, and the more so as things seemed to be fast advancing to a crisis. Hamilton, however, was more blunt with his criticism, as he told his associate that, quote, you know there cannot be any political confidence between Mr. Jefferson and his administration and myself, but I view the suggestion of such a project as secession with horror. It wouldn't be a conspiracy in the early republic, however, if Vice President Aaron Burr wasn't involved. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As we discussed last episode, Burr in early 1804 had pinned his hopes on a successful gubernatorial run to secure his political future. Prior to making that move, however, he had been approached by some of the New England conspirators. Burr hosted a dinner on December 21, 1803, and two of his guests were Senator Plumer and Senator James Hillhouse, Federalists from Connecticut. They managed to engage Burr in conversation in which they opened the door to discussing the plot, with Hillhouse asserting that he, quote, believed the Union would soon form two distinct and separate governments, and that a separation must take place. Though initially they felt that Burr was receptive to what they had to say, upon further reflection afterwards, they came to realize that, quote, there was nothing that he, i.e. Burr, said that necessarily implied his approbation of Mr. Hillhouse's observations. Perhaps no man's language was ever so apparently explicit, and at the same time, so covert and indefinite. Yes, yes, so many politician jokes come to mind, but let's put those aside and continue with our narrative. The fact that Burr hadn't become active in the plot and was instead focused on winning election as governor wasn't necessarily seen as being a bad thing to the conspirators, however. If Burr were to become governor of New York, they believed that would put him in a prime position to bring that state into a confederacy with New England and convince the doubtful Federalists in the Northeast that the conspiracy actually had a chance of succeeding. Thus, on April 4th, Representative Roger Griswold, Federalist from Connecticut, made another attempt at pinning Burr down on whether or not he would support the scheme. He went to Burr's estate, Richmond Hill, to talk to him about the secession plans. Griswold proved to be just as unsuccessful as Hillhouse and Plumer, only getting from Burr that, quote, he, i.e. Burr, must go on democratically to obtain the state government, that, if he succeeded, he would administer it in a manner that would be satisfactory to the Federalist. In respect to the affairs of the nation, Burr said that the northern states must be governed by Virginia or govern Virginia, and that there was no middle course. The election was expected to be close, so Burr could not afford to alienate any Federalist by flat-out turning down the proposal. By the same token, he could not endorse the scheme, for, as noted by Burr biographer Milton Lomas, quote, It is hard to believe that had Aaron Burr been elected governor of New York, would have risked the loss of his newly retrieved political stature by going along with a movement sanctioned by a handful of men in two northeastern states. Burr would not have to face that scenario, however. Though the election had been expected by everyone to be a close one, with Hamilton even going so far to say that he felt, quote, the probability of success, in my judgment, inclines to Mr. Burr. When the polls closed on April 26th and the results announced five days later, it was found that the Democratic-Republican candidate, New York Chief Justice Morgan Lewis, had won the election with 30,829 votes to Burr's 22,000 139. With nearly 9,000 votes between them, it was a devastating loss for the vice president, especially as it was the largest margin of victory to that point in New York gubernatorial races. While Burr would simmer over the election results and what it meant for his future, 
The election in New York also dealt a fatal blow to the prospects of the Northern Confederacy. Pickering and his supporters had planned a convention in November to discuss their next steps, but with Burr's loss, as well as Democratic-Republican victories at the polls to win control of the state legislatures in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Vermont, the secession conspiracy ultimately fizzled out. Though the hopes of numerous folks in the East were being dashed, turning to the West and to some folks that we haven't checked in on since episode 3.17, other plans were continuing at a good pace. Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, and the members of their expedition recruited thus far had been in the St. Louis area since December 1803, waiting for the weather to get more conducive for travel up the Missouri River and making the final preparations for their journey. Though the transfer to American control downriver in New Orleans took place on December 20th, as discussed in episode 3.19, the formal transfer in St. Louis would not happen until March 7, 1804. Thus, upon their arrival, the leaders of the expedition had to deal with Spanish officials and kept in as close of contact as possible with Jefferson and the administration back in Washington to learn about developments with the Louisiana Purchase and how it would impact their expedition. There was also the personal matter of Clark's commission. As Clark was to be Captain Lewis's co-lead on the expedition, the plan, as Lewis had discussed with President Jefferson, was for Clark to likewise be commissioned as a captain. As winter gave way to spring, there was still no word of Clark's official position. Despite this, both men were honored guests at the formal handover ceremony for Upper Louisiana in early March. Lewis and Clark would preside over a ceremony of their own at their camp on March 31st, in which they, quote, enlisted the 25 men they had selected to be members of the detachment destined for the expedition through the interior of the continent of North America. As the temperatures started warming and the members of the expedition grew ever more eager to get underway, the captains received disheartening news on May 6th, namely that there was to be only one captain of the expedition. Secretary of War Henry Dearborn had written to Lewis on March 26th explaining the situation. He said that, quote, the peculiar situation, circumstances, and organization of the Corps of Engineers is such as would render the appointment of Mr. Clark a captain in that Corps improper. Clark, in his previous service in the Army, had been at the rank of captain, so this was rather odd. However, Jefferson had signed off on and the Senate had confirmed Clark's commission as a lieutenant in the Corps of Artillerists. Though Clark would be paid at the rate for a captain, Dearborn had furthered the insult by dating Clark's commission to the day that he had received it, March 26th. This meant that Clark wouldn't be compensated for all the work that he had done for the expedition starting in mid-October 1803 up to March 26th. Lewis was infuriated by this turn of events and wrote to Clark, who was still at the expedition's camp, as soon as he learned the news from the Post in St. Louis, that, quote, I think it will be best to let none of our party or any other persons know anything about the grade. You will observe that the grade has no effect upon your compensation, which, by God, shall be equal to my own. Ambrose postulated about the situation that, quote, it may be that Jefferson wanted Lewis in sole command. Perhaps he reasoned that in such a long voyage, it was inevitable that the two leaders would disagree, perhaps sharply enough to paralyze the command, or, even worse, to divide the core of discovery into hostile factions. Whatever Jefferson's intentions, Dearborn's action gave Lewis an opportunity to take sole command, but he felt not the slightest temptation 
to take advantage of the situation. Despite the continued uncertainty about what lay ahead, both professionally and on the journey before them, Lewis, Clark, and the Corps of Discovery set out on a boat and two piros up the Missouri River on the afternoon of May 21, 1804. This auspicious occasion was witnessed by a crowd cheering them from the bank. As described by Ambrose, quote, As the keelboat turned her bow into the stream, Lewis and his party cut themselves off from civilization. There would be no more incoming letters, no orders, no commissions, no fresh supplies, no reinforcements, nothing reaching them until they returned. The captains expect it to be gone two years, perhaps more, in all that time, in whatever lay ahead of them, whatever decisions had to be made, they would receive no guidance from their superiors. This was an independent command, such as the U.S. Army had not previously seen and never would again. With that said, I feel I should inform you, dear listener, that except for a couple of messages that would arrive at the President's house, this is the last time we're going to check in on Lewis and Clark for a while. I had to make a conscious decision when I began thinking about the Jefferson series as to how I was going to approach what was such a critical part of his presidency. And I decided that as I'm focused on the presidency and Lewis and Clark are out of the picture of it for a while, it would be beyond our scope to check in on them when Jefferson had no clue as to what was going on with the expedition. Never fear though, in case you don't already know, there will be a return to discuss and we'll get all caught up with them then. In the meantime, there are plenty of other topics to cover. And to that point, let's make our way across the Atlantic to see what's happening in Britain and France. To start with the latter first, though there had been little fighting as of yet, British Prime Minister Henry Addington had managed to maintain support for his ministry's war efforts and was seen as being, quote, an astute and effective politician and an able administrator. With the British form of government, however, a Prime Minister needed to retain control over Parliament. And at the time, there were various key factional leaders, including Lord Grenville, Charles James Fox, and former British Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger, who all posed a threat to Addington's leadership. Without getting too far into the details of British politics, though the three factions would switch alliances from time to time when it served their purposes, typically Pitt and Grenville were aligned together while Fox remained opposed. Indeed, Grenville had served as Pitt's foreign secretary for a large portion of his tenure as PM. Grenville, however, had turned against Prime Minister Addington when the ministry negotiated the preliminary treaty with France as he felt, quote, the terms did not address the war aims that he had pursued while in office. Though Grenville professed, quote, that his opposition to Addington was solely on the issue of the terms of the peace, he and his colleagues opposed the government on almost every important issue thereafter. Fox, meanwhile, had come to support Addington during the peace, and his supporters, dubbed the Whigs, greatly increased Addington's majority in Parliament. So too did Pitt and his supporters remain behind Addington. Fox would abandon Addington when war was declared once more, but, as noted by Addington biographer Charles John Federak, quote, Fox was unable to take all the Whigs back into opposition, as they had become estranged from Fox during the peace, and several were moving closer to Addington. Despite now finding themselves on the same side, Fox and Grenville were unable to rally into a firm opposition force as, quote, they criticized Addington for opposite reasons. Fox for resuming the war, Grenville for not fighting it vigorously enough. Pitt and his faction, meanwhile, had remained loyal to Addington, 
but Grenville approached the former PM about joining him in the opposition. Pitt, however, had expressed in the House of Commons, quote, the need for unity in the face of war. And in a meeting in January 1804, told Grenville that while he was opposed to, quote, some of the ministry's measures and intentions, he was not willing to openly work to oppose Addington and his ministry, and he certainly would not join with Fox in any attempt to do so. Pitt may not have been willing to work with Fox, but despite their differences, Grenville was more than willing to explore the possibility, and the two developed an understanding to work together to bring down Addington's government and establish a new government which would, quote, include the greatest political weight and talent in the country. Initially, Addington viewed this alliance with, quote, more surprise than alarm, and Pitt felt that, quote, there was little prospect that they would achieve very large divisions, and their action was foolish and possibly dangerous. Again from Federac, quote, although the opposition had become more active, it had not yet become effective. There were still two key players in the mix that were keeping the Addington ministry alive, Pitt and King George III. As you may recall from episode 3.5, when Addington first assumed the post as head of the government, the king was a strong supporter of Addington, and he saw no need for a change in government. King George, however, would be removed from the equation in February 1804 when he fell ill with another attack of porphyria. Though the king recovered after a few weeks, he was still in a weakened position, and the Prince of Wales, also named George, was a supporter of Fox, and, while his father was ill, had spoken with not only Addington, but also Pitt about possible arrangements should his father's illness persist. Pitt, meanwhile, was starting to have a change of heart. The Lord Chancellor, Lord Eldon, had requested a meeting with Pitt on March 5th, at which he expressed his support for returning Pitt's power as Prime Minister. At a meeting three weeks later, Eldon was able to relate to Pitt, quote, that most of the cabinet wished that he would resume office. Though Pitt was unwilling to accede to the cabinet's demand that a ministerial position be found for Addington upon his ouster, Pitt was beginning to see a path back to power. Thus, as government measures related to the defense of Britain came up in Parliament in the latter part of March 1804, Pitt began to openly oppose the measures and to work behind the scenes to secure support for his opposition. By the end of April, Pitt had brought matters to the breaking point, and Addington announced to the king on April 26th and to his ministers on April 29th that he intended to resign. By May 10th, Pitt had managed to form a government and became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland once more. We'll see what impacts this change of government has in future episodes. But for now, we need to turn to mainland Europe, as France was in the midst of a governmental change at around the same time. In addition to dealing with a new war with Britain, French First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte faced the threat of assassination, as we discussed in episode 3.5, as well as plots to reestablish a royalist regime in France. If he were to prosecute an invasion of the British Isles or any other extensions of power, Bonaparte needed to know that his position was secure back at home. Thus, on May 18, 1804, the French Senate, which Napoleon himself appointed, announced that France would from this point forward be, quote, a hereditary empire with, surprise, surprise, Napoleon as emperor. Naturally, as this was the revolutionary way, this move would be voted on in a national plebiscite to be held in November. But I think I can go ahead and spoil the surprise and tell you that the establishment of the empire was approved by 99.9993% of the vote. 
If you are not suspicious of that vote total, dear listener, then you should be. As noted by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoen, quote, Napoleon controlled the nation's armed forces, police, press, publishing, and theater. There existed no independent means of contesting or questioning the voting procedure and results. If you've been listening since the beginning, dear listener, you'll know that we began our discussion of the French Revolution way back in episode 1.10 and have followed the twists and turns as various factions and figures have risen and fallen in prominence. There are various arguments made by historians and students of history as to when exactly the French Revolution ended. While it's beyond our scope to go into the ins and outs of that here, I think it important to note that both on the ground in France and in American perceptions of the French, the revolutionary ideal was still invoked, even as the various leaders, ultimately culminating with Napoleon, worked to consolidate their power. We need not concern ourselves with the spectacle of Napoleon's coronation, but we must keep in mind moving forward that, rather than the consulate government, which at least retained an air of Republican, small r Republican, ideal, France would henceforth be an empire directed in name as well as in act by one man. While it's certainly arguable that the revolution ended long before, the establishment of the Bonapartist imperial regime began a new phase in French history and would shift not only the balance of power in Europe, but would also have impacts in Franco-American relations. President Jefferson, who had advised on the drafting of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen in the early days of the French Revolution, would ideologically and diplomatically find points of contention with this new regime moving forward. That, however, is a discussion that will have to wait until another time, as our time together with this episode is drawing to a close. I'd like to thank my husband Alex Gim for providing the intro quote for this episode. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this series. I mentioned previously that there are multiple ways that you could help the podcast. And with one of these methods, you can get something practical yet soothing for yourself or a loved one. Through our partnership with the Hero Soap Company, you can order products made from natural ingredients and essential oils that will soothe and cleanse your skin. As an added incentive, they donate a percentage of their proceeds to charities that support veterans, first responders, and their families. By using the direct link on the website or going to Hero Soap Company, that's all one word, dot com, and using the promo code PRESIDENCIES at checkout, in addition to getting 10% off of your purchase, you'll not only help support those who have served the U.S. on the front lines at home and abroad, you'll also help me to offset the cost of this podcast ensuring that I'm able to keep going on this journey for years to come. To learn more about the Hero Soap Company, the Itinerant Band, or this podcast, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. There, you'll find the sources used for this episode, links to past episodes, and much more on presidential history. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out by sending an email to Presidencies Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on social media. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Finally, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.